Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. If it was a consultative call, uh, they likely wouldn't have went forward with the Emergency Act. And I, I won't speak for, uh, I'll allow premiers to speak for themselves from their respective jurisdiction. But uh, it was our view that it most certainly wasn't necessary. I would say that would be the majority view uh, by far on the call. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moore, who was a guest on this program yesterday. And uh, we were talking about the white paper that uh, the Premier delivered on Tuesday of last week. This past week. And uh, the Saskatchewan government is going to be standing its constitutional grounds or ground against the federal government, if necessary, on the issue of energy and agriculture. But uh, there was Premier Mo talking about the call they got from the federal government on the 14th of uh, February when uh, Mr. Trudeau said we're going to enact, invoke the Emergencies Act. And... uh, they didn't feel like it was a negotiation. They felt like they were being told this is what's going to happen. And they were. And as you know, the uh, Rulo Commission on the Emergencies Act is underway. Rulo Commission. And um, the big question is, was this justified? That's the question. That's the bottom line question. But there is the rider, and we talked about this yesterday, that they've now set the bar for enacting or invoking the Emergencies Act. Subsequent federal governments can be influenced by this government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. Christine Van Gein is the litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and uh, she co-wrote an op-ed which appeared in the National Post, and uh, the headline of it is the Emergencies Act was never meant to be used against political opponents. Christine, thank you very much uh, for, for joining us today. I just want to quote something from... Uh, from the uh, from your organization, the threshold for using the Emergencies Act is extremely high and has not been met. But they have set the threshold, have they not, potentially, for subsequent governments or lowered the threshold? I mean, that's the concern that we have. The legal standard should not change, no matter what. But what this does, if this is found to be an appropriate use of the act, is politically it, it changes when a government may or may not feel comfortable invoking it. But it actually should not change the legal standard. The legal standard is the it's a, it's a law of last resort, and it's only available if there's an ur- a critical, urgent, temporary situation that's national in scope that cannot be dealt with under any other law of Canada. And we've heard a lot of testimony in those two days that the hearing has been going on uh, that suggests there were all kinds of alternatives, even from the OPP. Uh, the OPP suggested that they did not think that this law was necessary. We heard from governments like the Saskatchewan and Alberta government saying that they did not view that this was necessary, that there were other legal tools available. If that's the case, the findings should be 
that this law was improperly used. Now, I want to look at the op-ed that you co-wrote in the National Post. You have concerns as well, and I'll just read this line. By law, the Commission's final report examining and assessing the basis for the government's decision to declare an emergency must be laid before Parliament by February 20, 2023. And uh, you write, this is a Herculean task, and you point out that no other inquiry has had this kind of deadline set before it, and arguably for many people, this could be the most, one of the most, certainly one of the most important inquiries in this country's history, or contemporary history. I don't want to suggest that other inquiries have not been important. They've also been very important. But this is the only inquiry to our knowledge and to the Commission's knowledge that has its deadline set by statute, and it's actually a very short deadline if you compare it. So the, the Commission looking into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls took over three years. And the uh, commission looking into the depletion of sockeye salmon stocks took four years, I think, to to issue a final report. So this has um, until February to complete its work, which is not a lot of time. That's why they have 20 lawyers on on commission staff. Mm -hmm. Canadian Civil Liberties Association, we talked to them yesterday. They pointed out that the government waited the full 60 days to appoint a commissioner. So what they did was actually shorten the time frame the commission has had to present its report. Yeah, that's that's true. They they were slow out of the gate, and unfortunately, I, I mean, this is no one's no one's fault. But the commissioner they appointed, Justice Rouleau, ended up having a medical problem early on. Uh, he, he required surgery, so we got about a month delayed from that. So we really are running short on time. That's why this the schedule for the hearings is. Uh, it's grueling. It's really grueling. The, uh, on Friday, there was uh, testimony going on from 9.30 in the morning until after 7 p.m. at night. So uh, it's a long day for everybody involved. Yeah. Speak to this, please. Uh, piece Again, a, a sentence from your op-ed. Sharp disagreements were immediately apparent in the Commission's opening statements. Uh, and, and we know this is going to happen. There are going to be disagreements, and they'll have to be considered, and they'll have to be factored into the final report. It is going to make this, this time frame particularly difficult to, to, uh, to achieve. So what about the, the, the issue of disagreements? Yeah, so it was obvious that there were a number of provinces who did not view the invocation of the act as justified, that there were concerns from the OPP, but there were also people representing, for example, Ottawa residence groups who really wanted to emphasize the level of disruption that the the convoy created. And there was a lot of testimony on the second day that related to that. So there was a lot of testimony from two Ottawa residents um, one was a visually impaired woman who actually says that she lost hearing as well because of the sound from the convoy. And all of that is really, you know, that's, that's terrible. I have a lot of sympathy for people who lived with all this distress. But none of that is answers the question about whether or not this was an urgent situation that was national in scope and, and critical and temporary. It, it actually sounds like it probably was not, given that the provinces said they the provinces asked for the Emergencies Act not to be invoked in certain places. I mean, Saskatchewan and Alberta did not want the Emergencies Act invoked, and it was invoked nationally. 
So it, it certainly did not seem to be required in a number of places, but it was still invoked. No, and by the time that they invoked it and they talked about uh, the issues at the border in uh, in Alberta, they talked about uh, issue uh, the border in Windsor, Windsor, Detroit, the Ambassador Bridge. By the time they invoked the Emergencies Act, those uh, those protests and those, those situations had dissolved. Yes, and that goes to speak to the question of whether or not the situation could be dealt with under any other law. Since ultimately the protests in Ottawa were even cleared using ordinary policing powers, the only thing that really could not have been achieved without the uh, emergencies act being invoked was the freezing of, of bank accounts and seizure of assets, which it doesn't seem was like was actually necessary in order to clear the protests. There's a lot of constitutional problems with the fact that the government decided to do that um, you know, that, that, that is an unreasonable and un, potentially unlawful search if that threshold was not met, which we argue it wasn't. What do you think Canadians should be asking themselves? We're watching this very carefully. We want to know what the parameters are. We want to know what the, the impact of this decision uh, is ultimately going to be. What do we need to be asking ourselves? What you need to ask yourself is not, what do I think of the convoy? What do I think of the protest? What do I think of the purpose of the protest. None of that really matters. What matters is, did the government meet the legal threshold to invoke this extraordinary law that's never been used before, that gives them the power to create new criminal law by edict? Did they have the legal justification to do that? Not do I have sympathy for people who were affected by the protest, not did I, did I sympathize with the protesters. None of that matters. The question is, was the threshold met for this extraordinary law? And we argue that it was not. Our hearts are broken for the families and for our police colleagues. And it's a dark day and it's going to take us a long time to process this. But we will be there to support our Sosun police colleagues and we will be there to support the impacted families and friends. Lynn Dolan, the uh, mayor of Innisfil, Ontario, after two um, police officers from the Simcoe detachment, South Simcoe, were shot to death just a few days ago. And... Such a um, it's a traumatic experience for an entire community when police officers are killed in the line of duty. Because you know we talk about police and the job they do, and once in a while we do something wrong and we end up having to pay a few bucks to make restitution. But when things go wrong and everybody runs away, it's the police officers who run into the danger. And they're there to protect the communities they serve. And in the uh, last few weeks, there have been four deaths of police officers in the province of Ontario. Three were shot and killed. One was the victim of a traffic accident on the way to work. And the individual who hit the uh, police officer's vehicle and killed the officer is now criminally charged. Mark Baxter is the president of the Police Association of Ontario. He's also a board member of the Canadian Police Association, and uh, he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mark, sincere condolences, and from the greater community, uh, you must be hearing that from people across the province and right across the country. 
Hi, Roy. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for the for those kind words. And and we really have um, the outpouring of support that we've seen. Really, as you said, right from across the country. Um, and, and it's been really strong in that community. Um, it's just been um, it's been really remarkable. Yeah, in in Innisfil, constables Devin Northrup and Morgan Russell were shot to death by twenty three year old Chris Doncaster. And on September the fourteenth, Constable Travis Gillespie of York Regional Police. Um, was killed in that that uh, traffic crash. And days earlier, September the 12th, two days earlier, Constable Andrew Hong of the Toronto Police Service was ambushed and killed at a Tim Hortons location in Mississauga. What's happening, Mark? What's going on? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, our condolences to the, the families and the, and the colleagues of, um, of the four officers that we've lost in the last month. It's... Um, you know, this is the the shaken. This is really shaken the policing community, and we are uh, all hurting. And the entire policing community is reeling from from these four deaths over the last the last month. But um, you know, the thin the thin blue line knows no borders. And when one officer is injured or, or killed, we we all feel it. We're all impacted by it. But uh, you know, the the men and women that ensure the safety and security of our communities every day. Uh, you know, are unwavering in their commitment to public safety and are back out on the streets, uh, ensuring that that their communities are safe. And you're a police officer as well, so thank you for what you do. But the, the question that uh, I think people are asking is: Was this loss of police life for officers in just a matter of weeks? Was it a terrible coincidence, or is there something else going on that concerns you, and which may lead officers to being in danger? I think, you know, certainly we have to, we're fortunate that we are, are not like our friends south of the border, right? South of the border, you know, in the United States, nearly every day we're, we're reading or hearing about a police officer that's killed in the line of duty. And we have a relatively safe society in, in Canada uh, and in Ontario. And just last month at the National Ontario Police Memorial that was held for the first time in three years, we honored six police officers who had been died in the last three, who had died uh, in the last three years and you know now we've got four in three months and we hope that this is uh just a just a blip and that this is not a trend that we're going to continue to see uh our you know, our members are highly trained and you know go to work every day they, they leave their house they leave their families behind mm-hmm. uh, to protect their communities and you know our, our safety is always you know the forefront of everyone's mind and i think you know we don't know all the circumstances of, of this incident from Tuesday, you know, certainly the circumstances of last month. Um, you know, I'm not sure any training uh, could have prepared uh, certainly for for those for those deaths that took place, right. particularly Constable Hong, who was who was ambushed really um, yes. while standing at a Tim Hortons. We're going to be speaking with uh, Jason Harnett, uh, the brother of Calgary Police Sergeant yes. Andrew Harnett, in a few minutes' time, and. Uh, Sergeant Harnett was one of the officers who was honored at the memorial uh, last month, as you know. Um, how, how, do, how are officers affected personally? And I'm just curious, are you seeing increasing numbers of retirements, maybe fewer applications to become police officers? What's the, uh, what's the response to, to these, these terrible incidents? I mean, certainly we are seeing you know, a rise in, in violence in our communities, we're seeing a rise in violence towards police officers. Just two nights ago, we had an Ottawa police officer that was significantly injured 
um, and involved in a hit and run. I, and I believe the suspect is still outstanding. And so we are, you know, starting to see these happen a little bit more. Um, you know, but members are still um, coming to work every day, uh, showing courage and bravery and, ma- and prepared to, to make sacrifices to come to work and to protect their communities. There is a, there's a you know, recruitment is, is a bit of an issue, and it, and it continues to be, you know, I think in all professions. You know, we've got a labor shortage sure. um, happening right now, but I think, you know, policing is a very uh, honorable position, and it's a calling. And we, uh, I'm not, you know, specifically aware of uh, recruitment issues related to to the to the acts of violence that we've that we've seen or that we've been experiencing. But um, certainly, you know, recruitment is is top of mind um, in in light of what's happening. Okay, so one more question for you: What might you, as a police association, want to see done? Uh, whether it's on the provincial or the national level. There was a time not so long ago that killing a police officer or a a prison guard carried with it the possibility of capital punishment. I'm not suggesting necessarily that this be brought back, but that that was an option under the law. Do there have to be changes in regulations and in, perhaps in uh, in criminal law to provide more of a, a sense that police officers are out of bounds, can't go after them? Yeah, I believe so. Um, you know, we continue to work with all level of government um, and elected officials uh, for ways to have stronger measures in place, um, specifically, uh, you know, at our borders to prevent illegal guns from coming into Canada and from guns um, falling into the hands of the wrong people uh, or people that are in crisis um, or may want to use a firearm for criminal purposes. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, too often we are seeing, you know, people commit serious criminal offenses and they go to court and there's not not very much happening from the courts. And so we've got to we've got to have some change around bail reform, around parole reform, you know, having a criminal go to court that's committed uh, criminal offense and giving them a hug and them telling, uh, assuring the judge that, that they won't do it again uh, isn't working. And so we've got to uh, we've got to strengthen um, our we've got to have some reform around those areas. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Retired Supreme Court of Canada Justice Thomas Cromwell is tasked with reviewing Hockey Canada and he urged the next board of directors be engaged with only a one-year term so to come to terms with the need to reform the organization. In a letter to then-Hockey Canada CEO Scott Smith, Justice Cromwell on October the 10th wrote, there can be no serious debate 
that the level of confidence in Hockey Canada on the part of the government, sponsors, some members, and the broader public has sunk to dangerously low levels. And, you know, former sponsors of Hockey Canada, including Tim Hortons and Scotiabank and TELUS, they're calling for a culture change, but it's not just Hockey Canada. There are other sports organizations that need to be looked at as well. As our guest has told us, Alison Forsyth is back with us. Former Olympic skier, she was sexually assaulted by her coach. And this is what absolutely stuns me. Urged then to keep quiet in a hotel room, sitting on a bed with her attacker, in the room, urged to keep quiet by the coach and Alpine Canada in order for the organization to not lose sponsorships. Allison, thanks for coming back. Each time I think of what happened to you, I can't imagine the gall, the sense of um, omnipotence, and just the brutality of that moment. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Roy, because I was the one that blew the whistle in our case. Therefore, I was the one that was subjected to that. There was other victims literally there at the time who, um, you know, they weren't vocal about what had happened at that point to whom they need to be vocal to. Um, and I, and so, you know, I took a lot of that trauma on, on our behalf. And I think the big message there was, it was an obvious, you know, infraction on, on my rights and coercion on top of, you know, I think many victims, if not all, I don't want to speak for them all, of course, have a very astounding level of shame and self-blame in these circumstances already. Um, but if nothing else, it really points to the absolute necessity for complaints within the Canadian sports system around abuse and maltreatment to be independent of the organization itself. What's your view of the developments at Hockey Canada so far? So, you know, what are we, October 16th right now? And yes. I, I won't flash back to the amount of times we've spoken about this, but it took too long um, to get to where we are. And unfortunately, what I know about what it means to shift cultures in sports, because I'm in this work every day with all organizations of different levels, is that also will take time. Um, so I'm a little discouraged um, just by, you know, asking, I think, a question I'm hearing a lot in, in social media and on media. I have the same question as, well, who's choosing these new people, right? Um, how yes. do we know that they're ethical and, and they're the right people to be making these new choices? Um, and to actually affect the grassroots level of the hockey culture in Canada um, to the point it needs to be affected is going to require all coaches, all parents, all administrators to start the change at all levels. If we sit back and wait for Hockey Canada to dictate right down to my local hockey organization what needs to happen, we are waiting too long. So there's personal responsibility on all of us to make that change happen. I'm going to be taking calls on this question a little bit later this hour, but I just want to run it by you. I had a conversation a couple of days ago with the father of a 12-year-old hockey player, and the dad said to me, I'm going to pull my son out of hockey this year because of what took place at Hockey Canada or what may still be taking place at Hockey Canada. I don't trust the organization. I don't want my son to have anything to do with it. I'm paraphrasing. But I, and he said, I'm telling my son why I'm doing it. I'm explaining every step of the way to him. I'll let him play any other sport he wants, but he still wants to play hockey. So I tweeted this out at the Roy Green Show a little earlier today, and it's unanimous, at least the, the, the responses I've heard. The dad is wrong. What do you think? Mm. I am mindful, of course, to not step into anyone else's parenting choices. Um, being a mom of three young hockey players, it is a challenging environment um, for any parent in sport right now around making sure their child is protected. 
Um, and I feel that not saying he's wrong or right, I do feel there is an opportunity for parents to do their due diligence to ensure their own child is protected and gets to enjoy the, the sport they love without that level of um, taking a stand. Um, and of course, this gentleman has every right to make his own decisions as of a minor that's his child. Um, and for me, it, it looks more like teaching my children what respect looks like, why they're not any more special than any other child, that they're, you know, there's no superiority in hockey and they treat each other, their coaches, the referees with respect and kindness. And, and as silly as that may sound to people, but that is where this progression towards maltreatment starts. Um, it starts with, you know, children and parents, to be honest, putting up with behaviors and um, abusive tendencies that they normally wouldn't put up with outside of sports. So that's where we need to stand up, each and every one of us, and shift in the actual behaviors that are being exhibited at the rinks. And Allison, we, we need to remember that um, it was a junior hockey team junior national hockey team. So kids, essentially, I mean, they're teenagers, they're in the late teens, but it was kids who were just a few years earlier were the same age as the son of this father I talked to. And and somewhere along the line, uh, no message was sent to them or the wrong message was sent to them or the, the wrong green lights were lit for them. And and I just wonder whether, and, and you have experience in this because you now mm-hmm. deal with sports organizations as far as uh, safety in uh, in sport is concerned mm-hmm. through your organization. Um, are we going to get, I mean, what do we need to do at the, at the organizational level and at the community level to get to the kids? Well, first we need to get to the kids. And by that, I mean, we need to trust that we can speak to children at all ages about this topic in a respectful way. And of course, it'll have to be done differently based on the age of the child. But you know what really you know, makes me sad um, is that, and I will you know, forgive my language here, but I am, I'm very confident that these parents of these young men that, you know, I'll say allegedly perpetrated this act did not think they were raising young men that would do that. So I do think that the fault lies largely in the system of hockey and the system of sport. We see sexual violence um, and sexual misconduct across the landscape, a lot of intercollegiate issues within the sport of football coming out of the U.S., major cases of you know, athlete protections and athlete superiority. So at some point, probably, you know, I would say unconsciously, these young men started to be treated with as gods as this godlike complex of, you know, this attitude that the only thing that's important in sport is to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we continue along with that attitude and we start, we keep forgiving boundary transgressions and microaggressions and all of these things that contribute to maltreatment, we will continue to raise young athletes that could perpetrate that. You know, they're not born this way. They are raised in a system that somehow along the line, they started to think that these types of behavior were acceptable. Yeah, and a bunch of them. I mean, yeah, it wasn't exactly. one or two, and it wasn't just one year. So it was, it really was endemic in that in that organization and other organizations. Actually, whatever happened with Alpine Canada and your in your case, how was that resolved? Oh, yeah. So we're still working through that. I mean, I'll say one thing. I'll say is I have respect for the organization now and what they are doing. They have hired a specific, very strong person who comes from a huge background in safeguarding. Um, to actually work within safe sport within their organization. So um, the organization is doing 
probably, I would say, better than most NSOs now. I just think it's unfortunate that it took the gravity of a case like ours to make that shift happen. So my number one message is if you are an organization that hasn't had a major, what we would say is a major case roll through, um, do your due diligence now. I'm, I'm very tired of you know, getting calls for us to come in and do work to make organizations safer on behalf of their participants after victimization, whether that's a victimization of a member of a public or a player or a coach, any participant within their organization. So it's critical to know that no organization is exempt from any of these problems. And if an organization is sitting here right now saying, well, we don't have any safe sport issues, it's not because they don't. That is statistically impossible. Um, it is because they do not have the proper mechanisms in place in order to, for, for um, victims to understand what maltreatment is and feel empowered to come forward and report it. So the catch here, Roy, is that organizations doing the right thing in the short term will make them look bad. So we need to remember that. In the short term, when they start to acknowledge abuse and it may get public in the media and they do their due diligence to prosecute the offenders within their own organization, that is going to be a reputational risk that they need to take and they need to respect that that has to happen. Once you put us in place, to be honest, if you were to hire our company, once we're there to independently manage your complaints, the first thing we say is you need to get ready because complaints are going to start to roll in. So it takes courage and progression and that is truly, we need to be able to expose the issue before we can fix the problem. And your company is ITP Sport, and you can find uh, the website is itpsport.ca. And uh, mm-hmm. Allison is the chief operating officer, and it's ITP Sport and Recreation. Now, you work with Soccer Canada. How's the, how do you approach an organization with uh, such a wide uh, national presence and a growing presence and a grassroots activity level that is probably rivals hockey and baseball in this country. Yeah, you know, from a participant basis, it's actually the largest. Um, you know, that's a statistic I didn't create, but there's almost a million participants in soccer. So here's here's the challenge with most national sporting organizations in our country is the systemic um, lineup, I'll say, to, from a grassroots level to the NSO can be very vast and very disorganized. What you cannot do is expect the telephone tag to work, where a national sporting organization sends out an email, expects everyone to read it, et cetera. So our approach to soccer at this point is to, you know, there was a McLaren report around some challenges they needed to clean up at the high-performance level, so we need to do that. And then we are in contact with every single executive director, which is the leader of all the provincial organizations, um, to find out what that level needs. But the big thing here that I think is absolutely necessary for all sports is a public interface where a parent can go on and do their certifications, where coaches and organizations can pull their policies. It needs to be public. It needs to be a place where people can go. Right now, safe sport is done behind closed doors. Even if it has the best intention, if you would miss one email from the governance above you, you may miss a very strong action you're supposed to take. So that's why we need to bring it more into the public eye where parents, coaches, administrators can all not only be accessing safe sport practices, but scrutinizing um, what is happening in their sport and filing complaints. So that's, that's key for me in this, Roy, is we never will get to every participant if it's through other people. It has to be a simple um, you know, website, as an example, that people can log on to to learn, educate, and, and take care of themselves. 
Calgary Police Services Sergeant Andrew Harned was doing his duty, working New Year's Eve 2020, and uh, there was a routine traffic stop, which turned into Sergeant Harned being dragged by the vehicle that he had stopped, and Sergeant Harned died. Now, I'm going to be careful what I say, because... There has been a trial of a young offender at the time who was driving the vehicle, and we cannot speculate as to guilt or innocence. The judge will make the decision, and um, so we will essentially leave it at that, although I'm going to talk to uh, Sergeant Harnett's brother now. Uh, Jason Harnett joins us, and we, we spoke with uh, Jason. You and I spoke in early September before the memorial in Ottawa for fallen officers which uh, was just mentioned by uh, Mark Baxter, the president of the Police Association of Ontario. Thank you for coming back on the program. What was that like for the family to to be able to uh, to witness the the honoring of fallen officers? Good afternoon, Roy, and uh, thanks for having me back. Um, I, I just wanted to first first of all send out my condolences and the family's condolences to the Northrop and Russell family and the, and the South Simcoe Police Service, um, who will be a part of that service. Um, for the next next time around, um, it was a very powerful event. Um, it made me incredibly proud. Um, obviously, it touches on a lot of emotions. Um, it does feel good to be amongst um, other people in similar situations. Um, we sat beside, we sat behind um, the families of. Um, police officers that have been killed with their families. Um, they were all with us there, and we were able to share some conversations and and uh, talk to each other about our own situations. Um, but it was just, uh, I think powerful was the word to describe it, and uh, really proud to be there. And uh, um, another moment um, to think about Andrew and, and all of the sacrifices of all of the officers. Yeah. What's the common denominator, do you think, Jason, that pulls people into becoming a member of a police service and become a police officer, many for life? What is it that that motivates them to do this? Your brother. Oh, well, obviously they love what they do. I mean, I hear that over and over again, um, that they would never trade what they do for anything. Um, and Andrew was the exact same. He, he just absolutely loved it. Uh, that's what he wanted to be from the get-go. Um, he would, uh, you know, hang around the, uh, the Haldeman Norfolk Police Service in our hometown of Hagersville and go out and ride alongs. And, uh, he was determined to be a police officer. Um, and, uh, you know, even if he was a bit too young at the time, he, he found other ways and, uh, he got involved with the military police and, uh, and spent time with the military police for several years and, and then finally into Calgary. But, um, I think what you'll hear is, is, People just love it, and uh, they they like helping other people as well. And uh, uh, so some of the things they get into, they're not exactly sure what they're going to get into down the road, but um, it, it can be an eye-opener, I think, for a lot of people. I, I think it was for Andrew, um, coming from a small town. Uh, he quickly had to adapt to all sorts of different scenarios and situations. Yeah, I think he still loved it. I mean, that's why he was out on New Year's Eve. Uh, he was a sergeant. He didn't need to be out on New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. It was just something that uh, he really loved to do. A calling, right? I mean, it's a calling for 
for your brother. What, what can you? T- I mean, we we know what we can't say about the situation involving the trial of the individual who's been charged. But uh, where where's the? Uh, what's the status of the case right now? Sure. Well. Roy, right after the police memorial in Ottawa, the next day after, I, I flew back out to Calgary. Um, this is the second murder trial. So there was a first murder trial from the, the passenger was charged with, uh, well, first-degree murder is an automatic, but it, it, he pled to manslaughter. So we the family had to go through that trial first. He was found guilty and pled guilty to manslaughter. And then the second trial began, and... Uh, so the family's been dealing with that um, now for two years um, since Andrews died, and um, it was on hiatus. The defendant had um, been had been evaluated for psychological assessment uh, that put the trial on hold for about six months. Uh, it finally returned. Um, we had no idea what was going to happen when we returned, um, but the. The defendant was put on the stand, and uh, he was um, uh, he was talked to through the crown and through the defense. And um, um, finally, after three days of uh, that type of activity, um, the judge has said that there will be a, a verdict, but uh, that's not likely to come until about December. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to be back for that. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Look, I, I don't like asking these questions, but it's important to you, and you and I have talked off the air about, about about the realities. These past weeks in the province of Ontario, where four officers have lost their lives, three of them shot, what's the impact, and I don't want to make this difficult, more difficult on you, um, but we have talked about it, Jason. What's the impact on the families on police families and and on families like yours that have suffered such a dramatic and traumatic loss? Well, I think the families right now are just going through the whole pile of emotions right now. Um, Their their world has just been lost. They're devastated. They don't know what to think. They're mixed up in funeral arrangements right now. They're dealing with all sorts of uh, calls and, and and external factors they never even thought existed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're thinking about the future. They're thinking about all of the potential that they could have had with with their loved ones. Um, they're they're overwhelmed with sadness. I think police officers uh, are feeling that as well. They're they're sad. They're upset. They're discouraged. I think some are frankly, could be afraid to continue their job. In other situations, I think this encourages some police officers to get out and continue to fight justice and and continue to fight in in those officers' names. But I think it does make some officers think twice about, you know, the profession that they're in. It's, 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 there is the opportunity, there is the chance that they may not come home. And I, I know that they understand that, but um, sometimes that reality is, is, uh, sorry, I'm a little lost for words. With no, I, I understand. I, 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 do, I know what you're saying. I, I, I've been struggling about whether I want to share a story or not. I'm going to 
and share with you. On uh, the morning after my wife died, mm-hmm. I think I told you this story, but I didn't share it with our listeners. The morning after my wife died, I had to go into town. We were living in Quebec and we living rurally. So I had to go to the bank and the accounts were frozen and, you know, I just left the hospital and I uh, was driving home and I was in a fog. And there was a police cruiser uh, came over a rise and he was head, heading right at me, toward me, turned on his lights. I stopped. The officer did a U-turn, pulled him behind me. He got out of the car and he walked up to me and he said, they looked at me, he said, are you okay? I said, no, I'm not. Well, what's up? So I told him, I said, my wife died last night and I just came back from town and getting bank accounts frozen. And he said to me, are, are you telling me the truth? And I said, well, this is not the sort of thing that I would, um, that I would be trying to make up a story. And he said, no, I, I understand. He said, um, can I see your license? So I gave him, my, I gave him his, my driver's license. He didn't go back to his cruiser. He just looked at it, handed it back to me. And then he said, uh, where do you live? Which was interesting to me because he just looked at my license. He said, where do you live? And I said, I told him where I lived. It was about two miles up. And I, I don't know why he asked me, but he did. He said, just, just follow me. I'm going to make sure you get home okay. So I followed him to our house. And uh, we had a turnaround in the driveway. And he stopped his cruiser. And I stopped my truck behind him. And I just sat and waited. He got out of the uh, cruiser. Jason, and he walked back to me and he handed me a business card. And there were two phone numbers on the business card. And he said, this is my office number. This is my detachment. This is my personal mobile number. If you need me for anything, call. I don't care if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. If you need help, call. I've never forgotten that. I mean, I never will forget that. That was such a human gesture. It's one of the most, it's one of the gestures that I would most appreciate in my life from someone I didn't know. It was just. Yeah, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of great stories like that, Roy, and uh, there's a lot of good police officers doing a lot yeah. of great jobs. And, and uh, like I said, helping people, they're human as well, and uh, they understand situations like that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.